Today, I'm speaking with Nick Hudson. He's the co-founder of the South African organization Panda, Pandemics Data and Analytics, which, as stated on their website, provides decision-makers calculated data on the virus's cost on South African livelihoods. Nick and I cover what is known about the virus and the disastrous effects of lockdown policies on people and businesses. We explore how bad epistemology and political philosophy lead to tangible harm in society and how we should treat each other during this pandemic instead. I learned a lot. Some questions that seem basic, such as whether masks work or not, have deep and interesting answers that may surprise you. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Nick Hudson. It's great to have you on the show, Nick. Pleasure, Dennis. Glad to be here. I'm curious, uh, 2020 rolls around, and uh, January rolls around in February, and we're starting to hear about the virus. Um, then March, what was it? How were those early months of 2020? What were those like for you, and what happened? Well, with uh, coronavirus being a seasonal story, we were sitting in the, the Southern Hemisphere, watching the Northern Hemisphere and getting a, a sign of what was to come. Um, and a growing sense that something was going badly, badly wrong, and it wasn't the virus. Mm, right. What was it? The reaction, the volume of it, the very quick repudiation of prior science, prior concepts of how to deal with infectious diseases, the ubiquitous nature of the coverage, the drama, all of that seemed to be pointing towards an immense overreaction. And that seemed to be borne out when we looked at the early data as it was emerging, which, as none other than Anthony Fauci pointed out in March, spelt out a picture of um, a fairly mild virus, one which would have mortality consistent with a serious flu season, um, as the World Health Organization pointed out at the time in the naming documents for the virus, it would be seasonal. It would uh, be closely related to other viruses uh, that we have long lived with. Um, and all of those things were swept under the rug and ignored. Um, and uh, even as the, as the volume of the reaction picked up, it was a very strange set of circumstances, very eerie. And so how quickly... Do you think the narrative changed around the virus? I think it was. I think it was extraordinarily fast. Um, and for me, the tipping point was the uh, Italian uh, northern, the northern Italy situation, and that uh, you know permanent coverage of uh, what was essentially a handful of over overwhelmed hospitals that, with the benefit of hindsight, are probably overwhelmed every two years. Um, when that became the object of interest for every television camera in the universe. Um, I think that was the tipping point. I can't remember the precise dates. Okay. Was Italy the first country to lock down? Do I remember that correctly? Second. Second. Uh, China. China of was course. the first. Right. They, they were, Outside of China. They invented right. it. And Italy, Italy was the first, yeah, after, after China. Got it. So yeah. based on how the narrative has changed, what 
what do we know about the virus today? And I don't mean what is the current narrative, but what do we actually know? What are our best explanations about the virus in terms of its nature, how it spreads and so forth? Well, for starters, it's, it's neither new nor deadly. Um, so, <clears throat> but this has been known since February that it's not new. Um, uh, it is obviously a new um, taxonomic um, unit, but it's new at the level of what is known in taxonomy as the individuum, um, in the same way that uh, you and I are both members of the same subspecies, Homo sapiens sapiens. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a member of the same subspecies as SARS-CoV-1 mm -hmm. and differs at the level of an individuum, which is to say at the same level that Dennis and Nick differ. Uh, so right. to call that new is rather to, to try and persuade me that uh, Dennis and Nick are indeed different species. Maybe we'll leave it to the viewers to decide whether, um, <laughs> whether that is or isn't the case by the end of the call. But uh, um, yeah, so that was, that was the first, uh, that's, that's the most important thing that we know that is contradicted by the narrative. The other that um, it's not deadly was visible from the time of the Diamond Princess in our, in our, um, in our view. Um, the dramatic story of the boat was um, overshadowing the data that emerged in two papers in March, which made it very clear that this this virus did not have the kind of mortality rates that the World Health Organization had been talking about. And there, I think what went wrong was that um, Tedros in his famous th three March press conference uh, conflated the case fatality rate that had been observed, I think, in China of 3.4% with the infection fatality rate of the flu, which is about 0.1%, thereby making out that this virus was 34 times as deadly as the flu. And that was a, a, a deep act of misinformation. It's never correct to compare a case fatality rate with an infection fatality rate. And as it turns out, and as the World Health Organization is now acknowledged by uh, publishing the paper of um, Ioannidis of Stanford University, um, the infection fatality rate of the coronavirus is uh, about 0.27%. And even that may be, well, even that is a gross overestimate for uh, developing nations, which have much younger populations. Because another thing that we know is that the age-based infection fatality rate from, from, for the, from this disease uh, is massively graduated mm -hmm. um, with older people being um, at risk to, to the tune of about a thousand times as much risk as younger people face, um, which is not to say that it's a death sentence for the old people. That That's far from the truth. It's just that the risk for young and healthy people is absolutely negligible. Right. Um, so those are, I would say those are the big headline items. Um, but we've also confirmed the seasonality. Um, anybody denying that right now is, um, is um, misrepresenting things. And in, in this regard, it's, it's consistent with the other coronaviruses that uh, circulate endemically amongst the human population. I think there are four that are quite common. They're all, like other respiratory viruses, a seasonal matter. The science of this is very contentious in terms of uh, what exactly drives that seasonal um, behavior of respiratory viruses. There are several competing theses and they may all be true and contributory or they may not be true at all um, but it is very much seasonal that's clear now mm -hmm. um, and then you know another thing which i think was really important was we 
we proposed early on that this that the susceptible portion of the population was low um, and I think that's been that was obviously the case from the diamond princess information and also from the 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 rapid attenuation of the exponentiation of the epidemic curves which was even visible in Sweden which um, didn't lock down um, and um, I think that that uh, low susceptibility is related to the to the point I made earlier about whether or not this is a new virus. Because it's not a new virus and because closely related viruses are very familiar to our um, immune systems, mm. uh, there's a big portion of any human population that is not susceptible and it seems possibly a higher proportion in certain regions than in others. Uh, so for example, it would not be misleading to say that there's been no epidemic in most of the world Southeast Asia and Oceania and really sub-Saharan Africa, with the exception of South Africa, there hasn't been a, an epidemic. Um, it's really at very low uh, levels of death per million of population. So that's, that's, uh, that, that pre-existing immunity, I think, is the best phrase to, to use to describe it, is a, is a feature of all populations, but it's much more pronounced in some regions than in others. Got it. And when when you say seasonality, just does that mean in winter specifically, or could it be in any particular season? It's in winter in the extreme latitudes. The story around the equator is more complicated, and it seems to be tied up, for example, in India with the monsoon season. Mm. Uh, there's something entirely different going on with the Sun Belt in the United States, although it's very pronounced and very consistent. Um, but you know, there the surges in. Uh, more in the summer months and I've heard people propose that that's because of the use of air conditioners um, hmm. maybe um, but it seems that the more tropical countries have a, a less um, it's, 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 it's not a winter story and of course a tropical country has two a, a bimodal seasonal distribution being close to the equator and having the sun directly overhead twice a year um, means that uh, they don't really have this kind of single winter a year. And, and that's probably something to do with um, why it's less clear what happens in the in the temperate regions. Right on. Okay. Tropical regions. Yeah. So you're in South Africa. And what was South Africa's yes. response, immediate response, when the virus came on the scene? Well, even before the virus came on the scene, we'd had one death and they locked down. And it was one of the most dr draconian lockdowns in the world. That lockdown continues to this day. Uh, we are in something like 225 five days of, um, of lockdown in South Africa. Um, it has been lightened as we've gone. But in our view, it's been um, an, an enormous crime against humanity to, to, to invoke the lockdown in the first place, I would say, and to perpetuate it for so long in, a, in an emerging economy, a developing country um, with no social safety nets to speak of. Um, very poorly developed um, in, in many regards. This was a fatal policy blunder and has probably got something to do, first of all, with um, the, the fact that um, we have amongst the highest age-based coronavirus mortality in the world. And secondly, um, the, that our economy has suffered terribly. We're looking at something in the region of a 10% contraction. Right. in GDP for the, for the year. Um, and I think it's important in that regard to take a step away from first world or developed nation shoes and to just bear in mind that in every developing economy, 
millions of people occupy a rung in society that is just one level above poverty. And so when you start stripping away percentage points out of the GDP that has a real existential threat element to it. And in fact, our, our um, first paper, the first paper published by Panda was aiming to address exactly that question, which we felt had been ignored in the, the narrative, namely that um, lockdown itself would have a mortality consequence. And when we went through the mechanics of producing that paper, we we came to the conclusion that even under the most uh, generous, uh, pers- even taking the most generous perspective towards lockdown and the most stingy perspective towards the economy, lockdown would kill at least 30 times as many as it would um, save. Oh, wow. Uh, in, in looking at a, a, a lot years of lost life perspective. And the numbers would be, I believe, more moderate for developed countries, but it's also our expectation that when the dust has settled and the analysis has been completed, it will turn out that lockdowns were a net negative effect from a mortality and morbidity perspective all over the world, wherever they were attempted. So in South Africa, how does the how does the lockdown manifest concretely every day? Are people under house arrest? What does it look like? At the beginning, we were under house arrest with very modest, modest um, allowances for physical exercise and shopping. If you take a look at Google mobility statistics for South Africa, you'll see it had this incredibly profound and sudden attenuation of um, of mobility. Um, and the economy took an, an immediate and deep uh, crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and very quickly, the, the nature of that economic um, crash became permanent to semi-permanent. In other words, there is ground loss that will never be recovered in the medium term. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an abundance of uh, rules that were without any apparent rhyme or reason. So um, the government attempted to regulate behavior at uh, in, in quite microscopic detail. So, for example, you were allowed to buy cold chicken but not hot chicken, and you were allowed to buy closed-toed shoes but not open-toed shoes. Huh. And you were allowed to buy T-shirts but only if they were intended for the purpose of being used as undergarments. Okay. Um, so it was truly um, comical uh, buffoonery that went on in the in the stipulation of the regulations of our lockdown. But I, I think it, to, to get too bogged down in the detail is to be silly. Um, the the fundamental distinction between essential and non-essential uh, businesses is one that eludes me to this day, and that's a uh, a bit of malarkey that has been indulged in by many countries. Right. Right. So I, from what, from what I'm hearing, I, I can hear a dissatisfaction with government policies. And I imagine that that was what motivate you, motivated you to start Panda um, Correct. pretty quickly, it seems. Yes. Um, it, you know, our, our lockdown, as, as with so many others, was promised to be a three-week lockdown to uh, provide the hospital system with time to prepare and to flatten the curve, even though... Already by then, we were very skeptical as to how uh, the, the enough um, retardation of the reproductive rate of the virus would occur to make an, a significant impact on the curve. If you look at these models, there, in order to produce an appreciable curve flattening, you have to make very uh, elaborate assumptions, for example, that you're going to halve the reproductive rate of the virus. And we just found that to be uh, wholly implausible. Uh, and we, it turns out we were correct. Uh, and the modelers in South Africa who have uh, uh, been brave enough to, to issue second 
um, vari variations of their drastically wrong models have reduced that assumption to 0.85, at which point the, the flattening effect more or less disappears. But it was the same story, you know, uh, time, for the, time for, the lock, uh, for the hospital system to prepare. And then after a couple of weeks, the announcement that the lockdown was going to be extended for a further two weeks, and then for a month, and then for another month, and another month until you get through to 225 days or whatever we are, and you kind of lose count. Um, and when that first extension came around, we jumped into action and said, this is, this is heading for disaster. And um, uh, we published that first paper. Immediately after that, we also started working on trying to understand what drove this massive difference from country to country in observed population fatality rates. Um, and we put, we did some, we built a very big generalized linear model, taking into account all sorts of factors, um, or attempting to 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 look at all sorts of factors. We stated a hypothesis up front that we thought it would be dependent on the average age of the population, the prevalence of comorbidities, the prevalence of obesity, mm. and what the hygiene hypothesis, which is uh, going back to that um, susceptibility and pre-existing immunity idea. The hygiene hypothesis um, uh, is a conjecture that people who live in uh, societies where the prevalence of um, disease is high, um, communicable diseases, um, benefit if they survive from uh, enhanced immune response. Another way of putting that is all the susceptible people are already dead. Yeah. Um, and so we tested that pre-stated hypothesis, found that three of the four components stacked up, the fourth one didn't. And then we began to throw other things into the model out of curiosity just to see what else stacked up as, uh, as a relevant variable. And we didn't find much. I mean, we tested mobility, we tested um, uh, temperature, we tested any number of uh, items. Um, and one of them that we tested uh, was lockdown stringency. And it turned out that uh, lockdown stringency had no uh, correlation with um, uh, ultimate mortality. And we were even even we although we expected that the effect on reproduction rate would be small, um, we were kind of surprised by the result that there was no impact on duration to peak and no impact on overall death rate uh, when we'd controlled for age, comorbidity, and obesity, and that was quite a, a shocking result for for us and one which has actually been replicated now, and I think you'll see it's already happening in the last couple of weeks. You'll see papers coming out attempting to show that lockdowns work and failing. Have you found, I'm curious, um, looking at any of the data, if some of them are negatively correlated with what they purport to, with what lockdowns purport to achieve? So in other words, they actually make things worse when it comes to the virus? Well, at, you know, the time, at the time of our publication mm -hmm. of that, um, that working paper, um, a lot of the data wasn't in yet, so we were working on the countries that had early um, epidemics, Northern Hemisphere predominantly, and uh, completing the curve using you know, uh, fairly rudimentary statistical methods for ones that were at a fairly advanced level. Um, at the time, we, we, when we saw that first result that lockdown didn't seem to have a beneficial effect, we wondered when, whether in the fullness of time it wouldn't swing around to actually having a statistically um, negative effect. And um, the, we're 
in the process of refreshing that paper, and that is indeed our finding, that lockdowns actually have a negative effect on coronavirus mortality. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a statistically significant one. Um, I now am not as shocked by that result because I've understood the epidemiological modeling associated with diseases that have uh, very graduated mortality rates. And it's uh, interesting. There, there are a number of academics who quite separately have pointed this out at various points in time. The earliest reference I saw to this was in 2011 um, by, in a paper by Mark Lipsitz, um, who's an ardent member of Team Lockdown, uh, very, very strangely. But the idea is that if you have a group, let's just simplify it and say you've got a vulnerable group and a non-vulnerable group, um, if, the, if you reduce the mobility of, uh, the, of the vulnerable group, oh, sorry, of the non-vulnerable group relative to the non-vulnerable group, you're in effect shifting the, the disease burden onto the vulnerable group. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. And what that does is, uh, you know, what you, what you want to do is if you, you know, the end point is herd immunity, however you slice it. This idea that herd immunity is a strategy is completely wrong. It's a dishonest move to make, uh, to call it a strategy. And the end point in any epidemic situation is herd immunity, whether you get there by infection or by vaccine. And uh, what you want is to reach that herd immunity point, maximizing the number of vulnerable people who are in the unexposed group. Right. So, so if you lock down the non-vulnerable people, you shift the burden onto them, you make it more likely that they end up in the exposed group. So it's a very simple logic, actually. It, it only sounds counterintuitive to people who have been banging the lockdown drum for many months. But if, like me, you are in a position of being, having been skeptical about the project from the word go, then it's a very easy concept to grasp. And so it's actually the expected result, is that I, I would say you know, pe people who are expecting that lockdowns will be associated with reduced mortality are dreaming. Um, it's the expected result is that, they're, um, that they will increase mortality and you have to come up with a reason why that um, increase in mortality is justified. I think it exists in the popular, in the popular imagination. There's an idea that, that uh, slowing viral spread will save people. But that isn't even a proposal of the, the models that put people into lockdown. You know, when they suggested that we should flatten the curve with lockdowns, they weren't imagining that that, would, that that reduction of the viral spread would per se save people. What they were trying to avoid was people being unable to access medical care. So it's a second order effect. In terms of the first order effect, none of those models entertain a reduction in aggregate mortality um, as a result of lockdown from first order effects. Got it. Yeah. So there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel yet in South Africa when it comes to when the lockdown might be lifted? Well, they've just extended it last night for another month. Um, the restrictions are now pretty light. Okay. Um, I basically don't feel that my personal life on a day-to-day -day basis is at all inhibited other than in with respect to um, there's still a, uh, restrictions on what you can and cannot do with the, with the with regard to large gatherings and restaurants are constrained and inbound travel is constrained by this ridiculous idea of having to have a negative PCR test before you visit the country. I mean, in the context of a 
you know, and, and I must explain our our um, our epidemic is over. I mean, it's it's gone down to levels that are just microscopic in relation to general background mortality. We were in the we were going into the you know the summer season now, and so there's no expectation of any kind of as they call them second wave uh, in the middle of summer. That would be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, our ministerial advisory committee are have been banging on the drum for months now that there will be a second wave now this summer if we don't all wear masks and behave in various absurd ways. Um, it's been a quite it's been a disgraceful episode. Uh, our agencies, left, right, and centre, have completely failed the South African public and failed to push back against the the political narrative. Speaking of masks, what is your opinion on them? Do they work? Well, there's no sign in the data that mask mandates have any beneficial effect. And what I always say to people is, it's if 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 you're listening to somebody who cannot list the pros and cons of masks and hold in their mind the idea that they might be hurtful or helpful um, and that that is a matter of um, empirical analysis, then you're speaking to somebody who does not deserve to be listened to. Um, this religious mania around the masks is clearly wrong, mm-hmm. and as is the uh, the sort of literal um, uh, negation of mask wearing. I'd, I'd, I would caution people against both perspectives. Um, and I mean, the intuition is quite clear, right? You put a barrier between yourself, your, between your lungs and your um, and the outside world, it's going to catch some stuff. Mm-hmm. What does it catch? Well, it obviously can't catch a virus that's way too small. So what's it going to catch? It's going to catch droplets. Now, that's well and good. So droplets will be caught in the mask uh, on the way out or on the way in. Mm-hmm. But there's much more to the story than that. What happens to the droplet once it's on the mask and there's a rush of air on inhalation and exhalation? Does it nebulize the droplet? Does nebulization worsen the end nature of the infection? Does it make it more likely that the infection locates itself in the lungs instead of in the trachea? Just to be clear, nebulization is is the the spreading of the the droplet into tinier droplets. Yes. Okay. Yes, into yeah. So nebula, the Latin word for cloud, um, turning the the droplet into a, an aerosol. Um, Got it. Very small particles, and our, our cilia and uh, in in our um, in our windpipes um, catch uh, droplets very effectively, but aerosols less effectively. That's why when you um, take medication that's intended to be topical in the lungs um, you breathe a nebula a, 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 through a nebulizer something that uh, bypasses the cilia ah. and um, and uh, so if if a mask acts to nebulize droplets then that would cause uh, potentially uh, an increase in the severity of infection um, and you also need to step back from the narrow lens of coronavirus and think about what the consequences are for having um, a barrier right in front of your face that uh, captures other uh, bacteria and funguses and could cause them to proliferate and cause other health impacts. And you've got to think of the physiological impacts of uh, increased carbon dioxide and so on. Mm -hmm. And then then there's also another way of looking at it, which is to say uh, there are many masks in nature, filters, of one sort or another, uh, some some pretty impressive and large ones, as in the uh, baleen uh, whales. Um, but there are all sorts of filter feeders out there in nature, filtering, you know, anything from large particles to very very small ones. Um, 
organisms, I should say, rather than particles. And so if a mask was so effective at preventing um, viral intake um, or, or, or improving the nature of viral uptake um, in some way, it would, it's rather strange that we haven't evolved some kind of mask system um, given that we have co-evolved with viruses like coronavirus and the influenza virus. Um, and, or another way of putting it is maybe we have right. a very effective mask in the form of our cilia. Right. And, and that uh, interposing a little bit of cloth is not really going to help things. So as you can say, I, I err on the side of skepticism, mm -hmm. but I, I would, you know, in the face of uh, hard uh, randomized controlled trials, I would uh, change my perspective immediately. Okay. Um, and the only ones that I'm aware of are the 11 uh, trials that have been analyzed in a meta-study regarding the, 28, uh, sorry, the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which came to uh, 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 the, the conclusion that masks were not of benefit. And then there's the Danish mask study, which is being blocked for publication for the simple reason that it finds the wrong answer. Ah. Um, I think there's a an allegation that the sample size is too small, but um, given the proclivity of uh, academic journals for publishing non-randomized controls so, uh, studies with where the, the sample size is entirely irrelevant, um, I find that difficult to swallow. Do you happen to know who's blocking the publication in Denmark? Uh, I was told who the two, um, it's not in Denmark, it's actually in the international scene, and I don't want to get the journal names wrong, but they were both, um, they were both uh, highly regarded medical journals. I see. Yeah, I mean, even just uh, and speaking of masks, even just stepping away from the data for a minute, um, you know, going into this, it made sense to me, and I said this in another episode, it made sense to me intuitively, like you were saying earlier, that a mask, if you put something beneath your lungs in the outside world, that something would be prevented from spreading. But the, expl yeah. the explanation you gave that, it, that our lungs have evolved to deal with droplets, but not with nebulas... That is fascinating. That had not occurred to me. Yeah. And I think that's very important. Yeah. Um, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, people have been living in pro close proximity with each other for millennia, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, and our, our ancestors, too. So it would make sense that droplets would always have spread between people, and people must have evolved defense mechanisms. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Now, of course— Yes. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, uh, for me, what this is, so many of the lessons of coronavirus are lessons in having respect for complexity. Um, in the same way that I disregard scientists who come down emphatically on, the, on either side of the mask question as being either dishonest or stupid, um, I am deeply skeptical of people who feel that they know the answers when it comes to manipulating complex systems, mm -hmm. whether those systems are human bodies or economies or climates. Um, brave is the man who uh, believes that he knows how to control one of those three beasts with whatever gizmo or idea he's come up with. Um, so that, that uh, reservation about tinkering with complexity is a, is a very deep one for me. And I have only really, in uh, working at Panda with the wonderful scientists that we have on our team, um, uh, come to appreciate just how deep that complexity becomes when we delve into the human immune system. I mean, it's a miraculous thing. Right. 
And the same way, I, I imagine that you would have a an abiding respect for the human brain as possibly the most uh, amazing uh, object in the observable universe. Um, the the immune system gives it a good race. I'll tell you that it's got an intelligence uh, built in over billions of years of evolution, um, probably predating eukaryotic cells. Um, so uh, for me. Uh, it's, that's been wonderful just from an intellectual perspective to delve into that. I can't say that I have the deepest or, or most retentive memory in that regard because it's all been a rather crash course. But we've got some great immunologists and doctors in our team who, who do uh, simplify it somewhat for the layman, which I consider myself to be in that department, and most, in fact. Um, but uh, it's it really is, for me, one of those things when you, it comes to masks, when it comes to changing human behavior, you've got to look out for those knock-on effects. Uh, stress, for example, uh, so, uh, or, or vitamin D would be another one. I, I, I think you know, the effect sizes here are up for grabs and open for debate, but there's certainly something going on with all of these things and um, striking fear into people instead of informing them of the, the, the real risks, uh, locking them up in their houses. All of those things strike me as things that could potentially worsen the susceptibility and disease, the clinical course of the disease. Um, so I, I, I uh, have a great deal of conservatism when it comes to intervening with complex systems, including the human body. Right. Um, yeah, I think the, the papyrian epistemological approach is basically if you already have a complex system that contains a lot of knowledge, you don't want to make any drastic sudden changes to it. Um, mm. bec- like basically... Um, revolution is almost always bad. You want to have small piecemeal yes. changes over time. And yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, just to play devil's advocate when it comes to masks and when it comes to droplets versus nebulas, um, I know nothing about um, you know epidemiology or diseases or anything, but I, mm-hmm. I would imagine that there have been diseases that have been fatal to large parts of the population in our history that were transmitted via droplets. Um, mm-hmm. Am I wrong about that? Well, Spanish flu gave it a good run, and that was a respiratory virus transmitted in exactly the same way one would assume as a coronavirus. Right. Although implicated in, implicated in that whole story was a bacteri- bacterial pneumonia following the viral pneumonia. That that's common. Uh, if you have a pneumonia, it often ends up in a bacterial pneumonia. But just bear in mind that uh, the science around antibiotics was in its infancy at that point. Right. Um, so that would have been an example of something that killed you know many a, a huge multiple on a you know population adjusted basis. Uh, relative to coronavirus and of course the plague, the bubonic plague. That's not a droplet infection story. It's a you know, more complex story to do with rats and fleas. But um, certainly human proximity was part of the story there in life, to complete the life cycle of that organism. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there have been diseases for which the, the uh, human anatomy was not equipped um, to, to respond on a wide scale and there was deep depopulation as a result but coronavirus is clearly not in that domain not even close not by probably two orders of magnitude right right it reminds me of conversations i've had on the topic with others who say well um you know imagine if the speaking of lockdowns and the justification for them imagine if the if the mortality rate was way higher let's say it was 80 90 percent wouldn't that justify lockdown well, first, let me ask you if you think that would justify lockdown. I can tell you my opinion after. My, yeah, my answer is no. Um, I think a far better approach than to start um, instructing people 
uh, as to how to behave in the face of risk and what trade-offs they should be making. Um, and, and you can't do that knowing the trade-offs, right? It's an information problem. You don't know mm-hmm. what's... It's, not, it's beyond the reach of man to know what uh, trade-offs are appropriate for every individual in a society. And that becomes painfully obvious in South Africa where basically people are forced to lock down uh, even though the outcome of that is almost certain starvation. Um, but, um, <clears throat> and, and in the face of a disease, which is, presents very little risk to them. Right. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite galling. Um, but I, I would say it far better route from an ethical perspective would be to inform as well as you can. And we could have spent a fraction of the money that it cost us to lock down mm-hmm. uh, to uh, inform people reliably about the risk that they faced and how to um, do their best to rein in that risk. You can't say that the um, actions would ever have been perfectly executed, but they would have been a far, lo- far cry better than lockdown. Um, so I would say on an ethical basis, no, you should never do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the, the, the intuitive objection to that idea, you know, that, well, surely if it's, if it's so bad, then lockdown would be justified. Actually, no, uh, because when, when the bodies are on the streets and you're having to step over them, I think people get the message and will take the right actions for themselves. Um, yep. In the case of coronavirus, you know, in South Africa, you often meet people who don't know anybody who's died of coronavirus. And that's not too surprising, given that there have been around 20,000 um, official deaths. The real number may well be lower, given the proclivity to include uh, deaths with coronavirus rather than deaths from. Yep. Um, but uh, we are, that's out of a population of, you know, 60 million people. So... And, and in the context of, uh, I think we have about half a million deaths a year, you know, in from in normal course. Right. So twenty thousand out of out of five hundred thousand is is not a, um, a massive story. I mean, we have ten to twenty thousand deaths from the flu every year. Yep. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I was going to say the same thing. If mortality rates were so high, well, then it should be very easy to simply persuade people, and then there is no need for force. Yes. Um, I mean, I think that's yes. that's what should have been, tell me if you agree or disagree, but I think that's what should have been, I'm guessing you would agree with this, I think that's what it should have been the, the approach from the start. Um, governments seem to simply have taken on this role um, unsolicited. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody asked them to do this, um, no. at least not. Well, oh, go ahead. I think the World Health Organization did. The I World see. Health Organization asked governments, yeah. And there was also propaganda from China. There's no question of that. We saw it. Well, so I um, want to get into that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I want to get into that because I think it's fascinating. Um, what do you think of, um, I think, Brett Weinstein, although I always confuse the two brothers. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with them. I think it was Brett. Yes, who was, for sure. <laughs> so Eric, Eric is the, 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 the podcaster associated with Peter Thiel, and Brett is the guy from Evergreen State. That's right. Okay, so I think it was Brett then who was on Joe Rogan's podcast who yeah. who uh, presented the hypothesis that the virus might actually have been manufactured? That it was that there's some evidence he says that the virus cont- you know was engineered by humans, although maybe not for the purpose of infecting people, but just as a you know as a part of studies in a laboratory. But that the lab but that the virus has got- had gotten out. What do you make of that? 
I, I don't have an opinion on it, and I've never asked the scientific team at uh, Panda to, to give me an opinion on it for the simple matter that it doesn't affect policy, and we are in this to mm-hmm. try and replace the bad science of policy with good science. Um, and so that's a, a sunk cost, whatever whatever the truth in that is. I mean, I'm not saying that it has no ramifications, but I, I simply don't have an opinion on it. I mean, it was fascinating to see really the what happened in Wuhan and uh, the amount of force that was used. Um, I had not seen on such a great scale. Um, what is it do you think happened there? Was this I mean, I've seen on, on Twitter, for example, uh, Michael Sanger, who I think you follow as well, um, or might be familiar with has proposed that um, much of this was planned and, and China has been strategically planting the idea of lockdowns um, on social media to to pressure people in other countries to to implement mm-hmm. them. What is your opinion of, of theories like that? Um, well, uh, I, th- I have spoken to Michael and I think one of his ideas is it, it wasn't, you know, uh, that it wasn't a sort of a Machiavellian long term plan to 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 uh, bring about uh, the situation, but rather um, when they were seen uh, by leaked social media footage and so on to be doing some pretty horrible things like welding people into their apartments and so on, um, that they went on a, a, a sort of a propaganda offensive, a public relations effort to try and promote the virtues of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And they were almost comically, you know, the kind of the kind of footage that can only come out of a communist administration, you know, of ridiculous uh, imagery and video clips and so on, and clearly staged um, sound bites from children and one thing and another. I mean, and, the, you know, we asked to believe that when we know full well that nothing happens on social media without the blessing of the communist party so you know that anything that comes to the outside world that's uh, favorable is propaganda sure uh, by definition and um, <clears throat> so they went on the the, the the theory is that they went on a public relations exercise that then ended up being very successful and uh, uh, took a lot of people in and and again it's this appeal to intuition you know oh, there's a deadly virus around um, okay we if you're accepting that point then how bad can it be to not get too close to people who might be infected, you know? So lockdown has a basic intuition. It's just that it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I see. So if I understand correctly, it wasn't like China had any bad intentions. They they didn't want mm. to necessarily hurt people or hurt other countries. They just were, were worried about their image locking their people down so drastically that they wanted to spread propaganda or maybe get other countries to do it too so that they are that that they don't look so bad yes i i am I'm, I'm in that boat i mean I, I i again again because it's not relevant to policy i don't spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about it but i'd be lying if i said to you that i spend no time on that one because it's just too <laughs> fascinating i mean i mean for me this was the the the, the really stunning thing CDC, the World Health Organization, any number of epidemiological journals have over the decades consistently advised against quarantining of the healthy, which is the previous term by which lockdowns were known. And it is astonishing that the rule book was torn up in, the, in a matter of weeks. Hmm. Unpicking why that happened, 
and what the role of social media was, what the role of perverse incentives was, what the role of a man like Tedros was. I mean, I don't think he's an insignificant actor in this whole story. Who is he? Coming from a Tedros, the uh, sec- uh, sorry, Director General of the World Health Organization, um, uh, was, uh, a, I think, Minister of Health under a particularly brutal communist regime in Ethiopia before he became Director General of the World Health Organization, and he was promoted into that position, it is understood, largely by the offices of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. The um, rival for that position at the time was a guy by the name of Dave Nabarro, who was the fellow who came out about six weeks ago, I think it was, um, saying that uh, it was clear that lockdowns should not be continued and that it was a grave mistake for countries to see lockdowns as the primary method in their response. Um, And he is a senior envoy for the senior advisor, might be getting my titles muddled up here, but he's a senior advisor to the World Health Organization. So it was rather interesting to see him come out with that statement. Um, but uh, yeah, when in the race between Navarro and Tedros, uh, the Chinese got the upper hand and appointed a, uh, a creature just like themselves into the position. So no surprise that uh, Tedros took a, a visit to China and, um, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, came back with glowing reports as the Chinese uh, uh, reaction. Yeah. Well, so I know you said you don't spend that much time thinking about it, but um, for me as a layman, um, how much influence does China have over the World Health Organization? I always, again, knowing nothing about such organizations, I always pictured them as a primarily American-influenced organization. Am I wrong about that? I don't know about the detail of the politics. Okay. Um, I would think that who you appoint to director general makes a huge difference. Sure. Okay. There also may be something in the nature of person who goes to, of, of person who goes to work for these big supernationals. Um, if you take a centralist approach uh, to the world, um, you are by implication denying that respect for complexity that the Popperian approach would. Um, advocate for right and um, so I, I would see those people as more likely to fall for a communist fallacy than than your the average person and certainly more likely than the average paparian agreed um, yeah I mean this this brings us to the the epistemological dimension that I'd like to get into a little bit more I mentioned earlier that excellent um, you know if the mortality rate was higher, it'd be so much easier to persuade people. This is the dimension that that I um, regret the most, that there seems to be no emphasis whatsoever in the public discourse, at least. Or I shouldn't say no emphasis whatsoever. I do see some people talking about it, but not nearly enough of how do we persuade people? How do we advise? How do we just inform? Um, there's. It seems that people want to rule with an iron fist and they seem to think if only everybody would agree you know this would be so much easier why doesn't everybody just stay home um but there are problems to be solved here and you can only solve problems by creating knowledge you can't solve them by coercing people to do what you want them to do um but that is missing from the the public discourse uh, discourse overall is my impression um and what 
seems to have happened, this is what um, at least some of the people I follow on Twitter seem to seem to regret as well is that there's more of a sw- more of a move to totalitarianism in that sense, even in the West, where it's particularly worrying, I think, um, where decisions are made without regard for people's consent. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I very much share your concern there. Um, I uh, am totally alarmed by this, the, the readiness with which most people in most, almost all uh, Western societies have embraced this uh, totalitarianism. Um, there's been a, a profound uh, preference for authoritarian modes of thinking over liberal ones. Um, and that has been deeply disturbing for me. I've lost many friends in this process, people who I thought shared uh, liberal fundamentals um, who turn out not to, and um, who readily uh, reached for the state, the big, uh, the big daddy, <laughs> yep. um, when at the slightest uh, provocation, the slightest fear. It's, a, it's been a failing, an enfeeblement, uh, a general failing of mind and courage that I've witnessed on a widespread basis and I'm battling to deal with. It was not my perspective on people that they were like that before this happened. Mm-hmm. I, I think I was uh, generally a lot, lot more generous and a lot more optimistic about the nature of man than, uh, than, than I am now. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I still regard the human mind as the most beautiful thing and I share the perspectives of uh, uh yourself and David Deutsch with respect to the human mind being a universal computer and what really matters is the program running on the brain. Right. Um, sorry, I've been using the word mind where I should be saying brain. Um, so uh, I, I share those perspectives, but it has been very alarming for me. Um, we have some bad programs running on many brains mm-hmm. and uh, those programs have uh, resulted in uh, the world being let down in a very bad way. Um, so yes, that's one dimension of the epistemological problem, but there are others uh, that have intrigued me throughout this. Uh-huh. Um, the one has been how incredibly powerful the old 19th century empiricist ideas are mm. and how much, how much uh, traction they still have, how much sway they still exert. Um, it's, it's been visible in the simple utterances of the World Health Organization time and time again. I'm, not sure if you were aware that they at one stage uh, came out with this amazing sentence. Um, there is no evidence uh, for human to human transmission. Right. <laughs> right. At the beginning of the process, which is astonishing on a number of levels, because first of all, from our kind of Popperian perspective, um, that's uh, not at all how you go about uh, generating your theories. You don't wait for data and evidence to emerge before you create an explanation. Um, and it, it was what they were referring to there was some kind of low-level evidence that uh, person A had transmitted to person B. Mm-hmm. You know, But there was plenty of evidence that coronavirus is in this... Um, in fact, it's not even necessary to use the term species, but in this whole order um, are commonly human to human transmitted so a better way a better a better initial position to occupy would have been at this stage there is no reason to believe that this is not human to human transmitted you know and the, dis- the distinction in language was 
uh, profound and set things on the wrong track. Uh, another similar one was uh, there's no evidence for asymptomatic uh, cases, um, which was a perspective that they held at one stage. And uh, you know the idea was that this that if there were asymptomatic cases out there, then maybe the Chinese hadn't contained it with their lockdown, mm-hmm. and they didn't want that idea to get out there. So they denied that there were ca- cases that the Chinese had not detected, um, which all speaks to the political agenda here. Um, so you had these uh, very empiricist uh, perspectives. Uh, data, data first, then le- data leading to explanation rather than explanation being tested by data, and um, uh, th- that surfaced again in the form of these models, um, mm-hmm. where you know, I think I think there the failing was maybe a sh- slightly different from either of the two examples before, in that the the generators of these causal models, um, these you know, causal structure models. Um, failed to appreciate that their models were in themselves explanations that needed to be tested against real-world data. And so they would go and attempt to calibrate them, a data-driven approach, uh, calibrate them off um, statistics that they felt would indicate how the uh, causal ant trap uh, ant farm should be uh, calibrated. Right. And then um, publish and walk away. Because you know they'd used the data to build the model, it wasn't yep. the role of the data to test the model. <laughs> and so uh, when things started departing and and all the predictions of those models started failing left, right, and centre, they didn't really even notice the extent to which that was true. So they would tend to interpret it in very very naive terms as like, well, I mean, we can be forgiven for getting the number of deaths wrong, rather than looking at it and saying, well, structurally and um, in, in terms of our sort of causal structure, is there something that's being challenged by the data? And it was indeed being challenged, left, right, and center, as I say. So for example, um, this question of um, whether uh, the, um, the R0 was actually being reduced by uh, the interventions that were proposed as a result of the, the model structure, really, um, they they uh, at one at some stage those interventions had to be released. The models, if extended beyond the point of release, would have predicted a resurgence. And indeed, when uh, Denmark and Germany lifted their lockdown, the cry went up. Uh, but you're going to kill everybody. It's gonna you're going to be faced with a wall of death. Right. And when that wall of death failed to materialize, they didn't say a word. There wasn't a oh, there must be something basic wrong with our model and there was the assumption of universal susceptibility was the underlying assumption that was wrong right okay the reason there was no resurgence is the interventions had had no effect the epidemic had run its course and uh its seasonal course and now when lockdowns were released nothing was going to happen because susceptible people were no longer there I see. So clearly people aren't looking to criticize their theories. They're looking to support them. And so they're, they're not going to learn anything if anything doesn't fit their, yes. their theories. I think psycholo- psychology is a very important component, but philosophy as well, epistemology as well. They, they, were, they were not operating from the mindset of working out all of the predictions that were entailed in their models and testing whether all of those predictions were being observed in nature. Right. Yeah, something that worries me about lockdown policy is that um, from what you've 
said, which seems to be the case in South Africa right now, maybe, is that cases have gone down so much, but the lockdown has continued for so long um, that, you know, lockdown advocates could simply say, well, that's because of the lockdown. Now, you you have good explanations for why that is not the case. But for from the, lock, from the lockdown advocate's point of view, he could always rescue his theory. If the lockdown persists, if he gets the lockdown to persist and cases go down, which they might have anyway, for whatever other reason, he can say, see, it was because of the lockdown. Yes, the, the, the field is riddled by post hoc, ergo mm-hmm. propter hoc arguments, rain dance arguments. You know, we, we, we did a rain dance, it rained. Uh, therefore, rain dances work. Um, and it's, it's not difficult to uh, navigate around those if you know your way about epistemology and data um, and statistics, I would say. Uh, not at all difficult. Um, we're talking undergraduate stuff. Um, first year, if not. Um, and this, this has been a, a consistent refrain, which I've been horrified to see coming out of the, the mouths of PhD <laughs> scientists, epidemiologists, you know. And it's very easy to refute. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if your model structure produces a certain effect from, or predicts a certain effect from lockdown and that effect is nowhere in evidence, then that would be a, a mark against the theory or fatal flaw of the theory or explanation. And another, another one is, um, well, give me the curve and uh, as a you know blind without telling me where the lockdown was and ask me to show you where the lockdown was in the data series given the profundity of the effects that are predicted it should be easy to do that it's impossible nobody can do it hmm. you can't tell the curves that you can't tell um the, the 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 characteristic functions of the epidemiological curves in a lockdown nature from the characteristic functions from a from a non-lockdown nation and um it's it's just yeah. Uh, there's no regime change, as it were. You cannot see the lockdown regime being implemented and lift, lifted in the data at all, um, and that is a devastating criticism. Yeah, something you mentioned there that I just wanted to pick up on. You said uh, reduction in cases. I think one of the big flaws of uh, analysis has been to spend any time at all studying cases, because uh, cases uh, are a subset of infections. So you're not reading the infection curve. They're a small subset of infections. Um, and they also, so then, 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 then not cases does not represent infections at all. And they also do not represent clinically relevant cases because we've taken on this practice of counting, uh, people who test positive, but do not manifest symptoms of the disease as cases. So they're neither fish nor fowl and they're manifestations of testing regimes as much as they are of infection and prevalence levels. And so it's very difficult to untangle those and much better to focus on the um, death curves, even though, as I mentioned earlier, those are also not perfect because of the tendency to collect um, deaths with rather than deaths from right. in the time series. But they have a lot better than uh, utilizing cases. So we, we more or less from the beginning have disregarded cases in all, in, in all uh, respects and focused on the deaths in the Darth Vader kind of voice i always say that focus on the death <laughs> well there certainly was a weird switch that happened kind of silently at the beginning there was a lot of talk about cases sorry initially there was a, t- a lot of talk about deaths and then people just mm-hmm. suddenly switched to talking about cases mm-hmm. because there weren't that mm-hmm. many deaths um apparently mm-hmm. um yes i think that was part of the political switch yeah right um 
Now, but there seems to be some hope. Um, I mean, for one, with the with what the work you're doing, and then also there is something called the Great Barrington Declaration. What is that? The, De the Great Barrington Declaration is a simple two-page document attempting to replace some of the bad science with good science um, and pointing out some of the things that I've gone on about uh, this evening. Um, notably, the the idea of focus protection which references this observation that the mortality rates are very different across the population, that young and healthy people are more or less at negligible risk and old people are uh, more seriously afflicted if they uh, contract the disease. Um, and so it goes back to that point that I made that the optimal protective mechanism is to maximize the, mo the mobility difference between the vulnerable and the non-vulnerable, not to minimize it, which is what lockdown does. Mm -hmm. And um, so it endorses the concept of focus protection, doing what you can to make sure that the vulnerable are in that unexposed group. And there are a number of other aspects to it. I would encourage all of your listeners to um, give a careful read uh, through of the Barrington Declaration to sign it if they agree with it after reading it and having heard what I, I've had to say this evening. Um, and it was promoted by... Um, uh, initially, three um, proclaimed infectious diseases uh, specialists or professors of medicine, uh, Professor Sinatra Gupta of Oxford University, Professor Martin Kuldorf of Harvard, and Professor Jaya Bhattacharya of um, uh, Stanford. And um, they have, to, 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 well, to, to great extent, from the very beginning, called this thing correctly, uh, seen it uh, in a very clear way each working from their own independent perspectives. They were not working together from the beginning, in the same way that we sat in South Africa reading uh, reading the situation with the com completely, uh, and, uh, bliss not blissfully, but totally unaware of um, the existence of any epidemiologists or infectious diseases specialists who saw things the way we were. We were feeling completely alone and isolated. And it's interesting, I interviewed um, uh, Professor Gupta couple of weeks ago that that interview is available on 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 our website and it was a relaxed uh, conversation more than an interview and i loved it i loved every minute of it uh, wonderful woman she is but a comment she made was that she felt very alone hmm. and so these scientists found each other on i don't know how that happened through social media through academic channels i'm not sure um, and they came together uh, in great barrington a town in which state is it i've forgotten now um, I don't know. I've never visited it. Yeah, um, but uh, they came together in the town for the purpose of uh, drafting that declaration, and it's since been signed by oh, tens of thousands of scientists and uh, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, or something like that, uh, of laymen. Um, and uh, yeah, very uh, for me a document that I can I can support almost all of it. There are a few quibbles I would have with uh, the detail, but that's that would be. Um, commodity to, to focus on those. The general intent of the document is to um, bring order in the chaos and to refute some of the very bad science that has been um, handed around in the context of lockdowns and NPIs in general. Um, and uh, yeah, um, we are great supporters. The, those three scientists are all members of PANDA's scientific advisory board alongside uh, Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Laureate 2012, and uh, uh, Professor Sucharit Bhakti of the University of Mainz. Um, and um, they, they, we, we value their support in our initiative very highly. 
Um, it was also the subject of a, a contradicting document called the John Snow Memorandum, which is, I'm pleased to report, received much less uptake than the Great Barrington Declaration, maybe an order of, order of magnitude less. Um, very strange document, that one, um, seeming to refute the very science on which the the models uh, on which lockdown was um, promoted hmm. um, relied. Um, strange lot. And the people who um, support it also, there was an interview recently or a, a debate between um, Jay Bhattacharya and uh, one of the signatories of the John Snow memorandum where for the most part his arguments seem to go around ad, ad hominem attack and uh, some strange points about the location of where the document was signed, the, the Great Barrington Declaration and the meaning of that, you know, rather than actually addressing the science. Uh, I think that's a sure sign of um, the Great Barrington Direct, uh, Declaration having the upper hand in terms of uh, scientific wisdom. Right. So now when we say we want to protect the vulnerable and basically let everyone else you know, go about their d daily lives as they please, I'm assuming we still don't mean lock the vulnerable down. Definitely not, um, for the same reasons that you and I agreed upon earlier. Right. Okay, so how would you convince uh, a lockdown advocate um, that voluntary isolation of the people who are vulnerable uh, works? I would appeal to their recognition of the value in every human being, uh, to their, their recognition of human agency, rather than trying to go through some logical exercise. Mm -hmm. um, this is very disturbing for me, this idea that there are people who just don't know what's good for them. I don't see fellow man, my fellow man as uh, being in that position. So I would rather persuade them of the ethical virtues of informed consent <laughs> yep. uh, or, or just information. Let's forget about the consent because that suggests that you're proposing a, voluntary, a, a lockdown or subjugation. I, I, I think people are sensible. I watch my own parents and my wife's parents and uh, they kind of read the situation and they take certain precautions, but by and large they realize that life must be lived and they uh, evaluate trade-offs in their own special way. And um, I can't tell you how many old people have come up to me with supportive uh, words, you know, knowing, having, having listened to an interview or read one of our many articles, um, and they have for us words to the effect that they are so glad to hear our voice because yeah. it breaks their hearts when their children are not in school and enjoying their lives or going through the important stages of life. And when their, cho their own children are prevented from earning a living for their, for their children, you know. Um, it's, it's very, uh, it's actually tear-jerking stuff most of the time because you realize what they've been through mm -hmm. at the face, in the face of lockdown. But um, a very amusing anecdote in this regard, um, when our first paper on quantifying years of life lost came out, uh, in the first version of it, we had a section at the end where we had the, the, that focus protection idea inserted and we spoke about cocooning the elderly, which was a carefully chosen word to avoid right. uh, locking down the elderly. But it was read nonetheless by an elderly actuary as uh, suggesting that old people would be locked down. And he wrote us a scathing note ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, saying, I'm, I may be 87, but uh, you have no right. You know? right. <laughs> and I loved that. Um, I loved that receiving that note it, because it just rang. It, it, there was something human about it and, and something irrepressible about it. And I kind of uh, read that and I said, yeah, I can't 
I hope that when I'm 87, if I ever reach that age, I will have as much spit and fire in my gut as him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think um, people on the whole are sensible. They should be. And honestly, even if they're not, um, that still doesn't justify forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. And it also much less justifies sacrificing the lives of others for their insensibility. Yeah. Um, yes. That's just not something yes. that should be done. Yeah. Yes. Life contains risks. That's just... They're yeah. unavoidable. Yeah. They're unavoidable and uh, part of the beauty of life. Um, we, we need to confront them and we need to live lives of courage and agency and industriousness. Um, and what this whole lockdown uh, situation speaks to is exactly the opposite. The safety culture, cancel culture, um, uh, being um, slaves to the great government, to the great uh, overlords. Um, it's the opposite of what makes uh, mankind so promising and um, human ingenuity and curiosity so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as I said earlier, it's deeply disturbing to me to see it, um, the, the, the caving in to the dark side of human nature having um, been so widespread and rapid. Um, and I know, having said that, that um, ultimately people think they're uh, doing something good when they wear a mask and when they lock down. Um, there may be overwhelmingly people for whom lockdown has light consequences. Right. People who can w easily work remotely or who have vast financial resources and therefore have no concern about where their next meal is coming from. Um, I do realize that they believe they're, 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 they're preventing their grandparents from dying, maybe, or that they're keeping them safe, you know, yep. that, that may be a, a fairly large motive, but it's, it's wrong. Um, they're, they're not actually doing that. Yep. And the logic may be one step deeper than the basic intuition of social distancing and mask wearing. But it's definitely a logic that uh, every human being is capable of bridging. Um, and so I find it, the, although it, I, I sort of pity a person with that perspective, I, I find it difficult to respect it. Yeah, no, I can see why. And I agree they're not actually doing the protective work that they think they're doing. And... Yeah. Um, you know, I agree that a lot of people have good intentions behind this, but many crimes have been committed in the name of good intentions. So that um, yeah. that is not the moral yardstick. Nobody wants to be evil, but much evil has been no, done. No, in the name nobody of wants to be evil. Right. Hundred percent, uh, Dennis. And and there's also an aspect of uh, willful blindness. Um, you don't have to think for very long about life in Peru under a brutal draconian military enforced lockdown to realize that that has got to have some heart-wrenching gut-wrenching um, consequences um, just a little bit of empathy at the risk of uh, using an overused term um, is in my mind not too much to demand i agree yeah um, do you see any silver lining that has come out of the lockdown i know it might be hard to to focus on that right now but has there anything good come out of this other than lessons learned? Yeah. Yes, I do. I don't think we are very far from the point at which we realize the, the great um, tragedy 
that is wrapped up in these weaknesses that I've been talking about, the safety culture, the cancel culture, um, and the lack of curiosity and industriousness. I think people will get a shock when they fully bear the brunt of the, uh, the long-term consequences of these actions, because there will be many of them. Uh, long after the virus has receded into the distance of as yet another uh, seasonal endemic respiratory virus, we will be dealing with the fallout of these ill-advised policy recommendations. And I think uh, there will be anger and there will be reaction. And I think many of these uh, weaknesses which have been brewing in society for decades, these are not new things, will be uh, flushed and exposed. Um, that's, that's, that's my sense um, and my hope. I hope that we can get away from safety culture. I hope we can get away from identity politics. I, c I hope we can get away from inhibitions on free speech. Yes. Um, I hope we can get away from relativism. But um, <clears throat> I hope we can get away from that stuff. They've spent far too long in the academia. And another victim, I hope, because I think I, th I think it's been a real problem here, has been the, the extent to which these teams are formed, the modeling teams and the, the response teams are formed by people of a very narrow bandwidth. Hmm. experts in a very narrow field it was almost like well here comes a disease we must get disease experts to come and sit here and tell us what to do even though what they were telling you to do had ramifications in all sorts of other fields so uh, to my mind a much better approach would have been to populate any advisory team with people from a variety of disciplines and i think that fairly mirrors the nature of many academic departments these days they're they're formed uh, by people who are specialists in incredibly and increasingly narrow fields replete with their own jargon that is unintelligible to people in other disciplines. Yep. Um, and, and so to me, this was a, a huge uh, failing, but also reflective of the culture that has evolved in universities. And we need to reappraise that. We need to reappraise the virtues of general education before specialization, and we need to reappraise the virtues of multidisciplinary teams. And that, mm -hmm. that's a feature of Panda. We have uh, people from all walks, immunologists and vaccinologists, sure, but also um, economists and lawyers and actuaries and statisticians and data scientists on our team and have had from the beginning. And I think it's, uh, and public health experts and doctors and, you know, um, I think it's been a reason why we've been able to get to the heart of things very quickly is, uh, the perspective of one professional was challenged by the perspective of another from a different field, leading to right. very rapid knowledge growth. Right. Um, and and I do hope that that yeah I do hope that that comes comes out. And I, I must say I've I've read exactly that in the in the work of David Deutsch and in in your book um, is the the value of having a mind that uh, crosses disciplines. Um, we need to we need we we have been. Uh, too inclined to worship the narrow expert. Right. And I know that there's almost a sense in which there's a, a bit of Luddartism associated with criticism of experts. There's this idea that there are out there a bunch of thugs and ogres who don't appreciate experts. No, it's, it's, it's more a question of um, being skeptical about a person who has expertise in a narrow field and having some admiration for a well-read, curious person who is... Um, uh, fairly well versed and reasonably steeped in a variety of fields, mm -hmm. such such uh, um, polymaths, uh, generalists, Victorians, um, uh, Renaissance men, 
are right. not uh, held in very high esteem these days. And we tend either to support these incredibly narrow export experts or a bunch of uh, charlatans with the latest, uh, you know, the Johnny Come Lately theory of how the world works expressed in a 200 page paperback, you know. Um, and the, the loss of the richly educated, deeply curious, studious um, uh, generalist is, uh, is, is, I think, a, a, a something that we ought to think about. I agree. And um, I, I think philosophy in general should be held in much higher regard. Um, yeah. We can see evidently, it's particularly clear in this situation now that bad philosophy, bad epistemology in particular, leads to bad yeah. political philosophy, leads to bad policies, um, leads to terrible treatment of people. Um, yeah. One silver lining I will say that I've seen come out of the, it might really be the only one, is the that children have been less subjective, subjected to force, from what I can tell. Um, uh, I'm opposed to mandatory schooling. Um, so the fact that children aren't forced to actually go to some place, um, that I think is a good thing. Um, of course, that was not by design and it didn't come out of some philosophical realization that forcing children is bad. It came out of different motivations. Mm. Um, mm. That is the one silver lining I see. Um, mm. otherwise, I can, otherwise, I can only, only hope that you're right, that people will will understand what is happening, that there will, I saw that you, you wrote on Twitter, there will be trials. I hope that's correct. Um, grave injustices are being done, and I, I think you're doing great work. Um, how can people find you, and how, what can they do to help you? Well, um, we have a, a huge demand for resources because our work has been expanding on the international stage at, at, a, a, at a rate of knots, and we have more tasks than we have people. Mm -hmm. um, so, so scientists who might quietly have harbored reservations about the direction in which the world is heading, but been unable to uh, find a place to work and contribute to a movement against, are very welcome uh, at Panda. We, we do preserve uh, confidentiality when that is demanded by the circumstances and there are a great number. In fact, only a minority of the members of Panda appear on our website. Um, you can look at our website. It's www.pandata.org. Um, Twitter handle is, and, and the Facebook handle is Pandata19. Um, my Twitter handle is Nick Hudson CT for Cape Town possibly poorly chosen I might move one day but uh, love Cape Town don't get me wrong um, <laughs> and and we also have a donations button on our page and a variety of payments methods uh, we've there's we, we look after the cash that we receive and make sure that it all goes in the direction of um, uh, promoting the mission nobody uh, is paid uh, to date the funding has been by the members and by speaking engagements and that is becoming uh, unsustainable as we expand and need to promote our message on a on a wider stage um, and we also uh, one very valuable thing has been people who are who are prepared to look past the cancel culture aspect of the age and engage us uh, in debate and argument we value that very prize it very highly um, and are always willing to engage with people who are prepared to 
keep a calm voice and not lose their temper and debate and argue. We value that very highly and we have changed our minds on a couple of uh, explanations um, and hope to do so again in future because how else does knowledge grow? That is the sign of a rational mind. Great. To, to any listeners who may not have been uh, entirely convinced by the posture or tone of voice uh, for that matter, um, I, I would just remind them that it's always like that when uh, knowledge moves and uh, to not uh, go to the to the nearest uh, conspiracy theory right um, we do not have a political agenda um, we are a very diverse group uh, the people come from many nations and having occupied many positions on political spectra um, so I would just appeal to such people who, who might be listening um, with some doubts to, to, to suspend the judgment and to go along with some of the thought processes and rather to engage us than to dismiss. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, I have a, a, a resource request from you. Uh, Panda would very much like to uh, host you on uh, one of our podcasts one of these days because oh, I, sure. I think our, epist- our epistemology is very aligned with yours and, and far more rudimentary than the one that you've uh, developed in your excellent book. Well, you're very kind to say that. I would be happy to, to appear on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was great to have you on. I learned a lot. Thank you, Dennis. And thanks very much for reaching out. It's, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, late, late at night here now, uh, but I've been kept wide awake by the conversation. Thank you. <laughs>